Welcome to the Granite State Gardening Podcast, a production of the University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension. Today's episode features a conversation between Becky Seidman and I on season extension and overwintering veggies in the garden and on the homestead. We'll also have a featured question by Emma Erler on winter sowing and frost seeding, and I'll share a few tips for putting the garden to bed at the end, and as always, Emma will highlight a featured plant. Lots to get to today, so let's get into it. Greetings, Granite State Gardeners. I'm Nate Burnett's Public Engagement Manager for UNH Extension, and I'm joined now by UNH Extension Sustainable Horticulture Specialist, Becky Seidman, who's also a researcher at the New Hampshire Agricultural Experiment Station and a professor of sustainable agriculture and food systems in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of New Hampshire. Now that we're already in early October, I know garlic is on your mind, but I wonder if you're done planting all your other veggies until spring or if you still have some planting to do. I'm thinking mostly about garlic, although I do like my ornamental bulbs as well, getting ready to plant some garlic for the for the winter. Um, I'm also thinking about, you know, our very, like everything's pretty much planted in um, for late fall harvest, but keeping those going and keeping those protected from frosts that are coming is a big focus of my efforts right now. Well, that's very convenient because that's what we're going to be talking about. But Becky, tell us about your favorite garlic varieties. Oh, that's funny. We have, we grow five garlic varieties at home. But even if I told you what they were, I'm a little suspicious that everyone's garlic varieties are not the same, even ones with the same name. There's some genetic, there's some varietal confusion. So we grow ones that we purchased as music and enchelium and Russian red and Russian top set and all of these I like for because they're different and I think the diversity is good and some of them do better in some years than others and some are bigger in some years than others and so I like to keep all that diversity but in reality I can't really taste the difference between them. Okay so I'm actually only growing garlic for the second time now and the first time I did it I was really excited about the variety I was going to get in the mail and at the very last minute they pulled the curtain out from under me. They said that the garlic had some sort of nematode pest issue that they had screened for and caught. And so they didn't fulfill my order. And I ended up getting stuck with some sort of leftover garlic at, at the local feed store. Can't really answer that. I've basically grown up eating garlic from the grocery store. And I'm ready for the next phase of my life where I grow delicious garlic varieties in my garden. And I want to revisit this topic in like three years when I'm able to say what I've had, what I've grown myself, and what I like. Because I know I like garlic. I even like garlic raw sometimes, like the elephant garlic or something like that is delicious raw. I like garlic in everything, but I can't wait to be able to answer that authoritatively uh, <laughs> with experience under my belt proudly kind of beaming from all my success in the garlic department. Speaking of preferences, though, Becky, like from your experience, are there any veggies that you prefer to grow in the fall as opposed to the spring? There are very few crops that I prefer to seed 
in the fall because around here most things need to get going um, at least midsummer if we want to let have them grow into the fall or be overwintered. An example that I can think of, and this isn't quite what you asked, but when I think about strong preferences, I, I think about parsnip, which I've been thinking about for some time because I plant my parsnips back in June, but I prefer to harvest those in the spring rather than the fall. And so I want to kind of protect them and um, keep them in place because they're much sweeter in the spring, of course. Um, so that's, that's an example where I think there's a really clear preference. Well, let me, let me explain why, what I'm thinking here. So I know that some crops have a reputation for tasting better after they've experienced frost. And so if you're growing in the spring, you're planting or transplanting out in that frost period. But by the time you're harvesting and those crops are mature, of course, we're past the time of frost. Whereas in the fall, it's the complete opposite dynamic. So I'm thinking, like, are there any crops that just taste better when they're planted in, say, the late summer and you're harvesting them after we've had some mild frosts? Yes. Let me amend my response. Yeah. What hung me up was this, this idea of planting in the fall. So many of our fall harvested crops, as you mentioned, are planted a bit earlier than that, like in the late summer. But spinach, chard beets, carrots, any of the brassicas like um, kale or Brussels sprouts, um, rutabagas, all of these are actually, in my opinion, better and sweeter and more flavorful if they're harvested after they've gotten a bit of a cold snap um, after that, that first frost. So I would say all of those actually benefit from that cold fall weather so you mentioned first frost how do you anticipate when that's going to be and how do you plan around that like if you've kind of pinpointed a certain date on the calendar as anticipating hey by this time it's really likely we're going to have that first frost how is that impacting your planning for your fall garden as well as any sort of protection that you might give crops out in your garden in anticipation of that first frost well, I would say that the first frost date is really most important when, or frost at all, frost is most important when you're thinking about trying to protect sensitive crops, like warm season crops, like peppers and eggplants and tomatoes and so forth. Um, when you're talking about scheduling and planting cool season vegetables, really the first frost date is not important. What's important is that they've gotten a fair amount of growth before the light levels and the temperature generally go down. So it's really the first frost date isn't really critical to keep in mind for a fall or winter garden. It's really when the ground freezes and when the temperature drops generally. So really we're talking about planting stuff often in August or very early September at the latest so that it has enough time to grow before um, 
we just don't get warm days anymore. But these kinds of crops are resistant to, you know, they're, they're cold hot, tolerant. They can take a frost so that the frost itself is not key. It's the, the weather around the fall. As far as predicting, it's really, really hard. It's much harder, I think. I mean, you can look up fall frost date calendars um, and try to predict for your area, but it's much more variable um, than I think we tend to expect for spring frosts. And it, it seems to be pushing later often. Um, it's, it's quite difficult to predict. It could be anywhere from four to six weeks different from one year to another. And so I think the real key there is to think about being ready for it so that you're ready to protect the things that are going to die when the frost comes. But it's not necessarily so, so important when you're talking about these fall and winter crops. So the two takeaways there, one is that the first frost of the fall is a lot more unpredictable than the last frost of the spring. And the second is that it's less important from a gardening perspective. I guess there are some warm season crops that we do stretch as late as we can, like tomatoes, where I know some people might be really motivated to keep those tomatoes going even longer and might throw row cover or something like that over their tomatoes. So keeping an eye on the forecast in that regard, it doesn't really require any planning, though. If you know that a frost is coming maybe tomorrow morning, you just go out there and throw some row cover on and hope for the best. That's really true. It depends on the volume of your gardening efforts, how much planning this requires. Oh, yeah. Say say more about that. So for because I'm thinking about myself being a really small scale gardener, but for someone who is growing at a larger scale and can't just walk outside, throw some row cover on and, you know, come back in, what sort of planning is is going into that? Now we're thinking about sort of homesteader scale potentially. Well, exactly. And if you, you are a serious homesteader, you probably have a supply of lots of old blankets and sheets and extra thick row covers and things at the ready to cover over your plants. You've probably thought about the fact that, gosh, some of these are going to get crushed if I just cover them with a blanket. I need to build some kind of structure to support them. You have maybe thought about which crops ahead of time you're going to be covered so that you don't remember in the morning that, whoops, I forgot that whole plot. So, uh, you know, maybe that's getting a little um, a little excessive, but if you have many production areas and lots of crops, it's good to think that through and make sure you have the supplies you need to cover them if you're going to cover them. Or harvest those crops and bring them in if they're close enough to the end of the season that, you know, it's not worth keeping them going. So I think as we go through this conversation, it's going to be good to keep our mind on whether something is practical for a certain type of gardener. So really enterprising gardeners might maybe have an unheated greenhouse, might even have a high tunnel, I guess. But for, for many gardeners, they may be thinking more about investing or building their first cold frame or potentially setting up a low tunnel for the first time or utilizing row cover 
Uh, so I want to keep this spectrum in mind as we start to talk about season extension. Becky, this is kind of a core expertise of yours, something you've done a lot of research on in an agricultural context, but I know it's also something that you practice and employ as an enthusiastic gardener yourself. So I mentioned some different techniques, low tunnels, row cover, cold frames, high tunnels, unheated greenhouses. Does that kind of cover the gamut of season extension techniques that we should talk about, or am I missing anything? I think it does. Um, I think I would add one little thing to it, and that's um, if you are thinking about a couple of unusual alternative crops, um, and I'm thinking of radicchios, and I'm thinking about Belgian endives. These are things where you grow them through the main season, but you dig them up, pot those roots, and then move them into a dark part of your basement or your house and continue to grow those. So there's something where you've got some season extension and you're producing some salad vegetables without even being in the garden. You've moved, you've brought the garden inside. Wow, that's really neat. I had no idea. Yeah, I'll have to cultivate a palette for Belgian endives and, and get that going. That sounds great. So I feel like row cover is the easiest entry point. Um, that's something that you might already have on hand from from spring gardening as something that you might be using for insect exclusion or frost protection for for tender crops in the late spring. Uh, so how can that be a tool for the fall and what kind of impact might you expect? Like, is that really going to make a marginal difference or could that actually make a pretty significant, significant difference? And what crops are you thinking are really good candidates to be looking at using row cover for? That's a great question. I think that, um, I think that row covers are, can be used pretty much for any crop and that you're right. They're the lowest entry point, very easy to get, very easy to use. And they will make a very big difference in terms of keeping a frost sensitive crop alive if they're layered up enough and it doesn't get too cold. So it could mean that you have access to some frost sensitive crops for another couple weeks, three weeks, four weeks, if we get an early frost and then there's a big gap before the next one, for example, or before the hard freeze. I would say in terms of stimulating and promoting fall growth on cold tolerant crops, there's probably limited gain from row cover. You would get a little bit and they plants will grow faster. They'll have more growing degree days. They will get bigger. Um, and so you probably would get, get some some gain from that. You would get more gain if you put them on a hoop and therefore have some sort of air buffered around them. And if you also covered them with plastic so as to try to create a low tunnel. So you can, you can start to increase the effects um, a little bit by adding other materials to make something that's actually closer to a greenhouse, really. So before we get into low tunnels, I want to just go back to one thing you said. You mentioned a hard freeze. Can you help me and listeners understand what is the distinction between a frost and a hard freeze? 
So a frost happens anytime the temperature drops to 32 degrees Fahrenheit or below. And cold sensitive or yeah, cold sensitive crops like sweet potatoes or um, peppers and things like that um, will be damaged by exposure to that temperature. But uh, often if it just gets to 32 degrees for you know, a few hours, the plants might, might, might not be hurt very badly. Maybe a few leaves would be injured, but the growing point survives and the plant can come out of that. A hard freeze is when the temperatures go down into, I don't know what the, if there's a specific cutoff for that terminology, but I would say the low twenties. Um, and so, you know, that whole period of time when the temperatures are dropping to the low 20s, it's below 32 for a long period of time. And so there's a, a much better chance that um, plants are injured or killed, even if they're covered because of the prolonged exposure to below freezing temperatures. So when we talk about a, a light frost or a harder frost, it's easy to you can often protect plants. But when we start talking about these much colder temperatures, a hard freeze, um, we might actually lose plants. And I imagine that even for plants that are hardy enough to withstand a hard freeze, their rate of growth would probably drop precipitously, right? Yes. Although a lot of it has to do with, a lot of rate of growth has to do with the environmental conditions around that period of time. So usually by the time we've hit a hard freeze, the general daytime highs and lows have gradually dropped off to a point where we're not above sort of the, the base temperature for the plant, the temperature at which the plant can grow. And we're not above that base temperature for very much time in a day. If we had a hard freeze, all of a sudden out of the blue in August, and then we continue to have perfectly good weather, it wouldn't probably affect the rate of growth as long as you could keep things alive because the rate of growth is more determined about how many hours a day you're above that base temperature, basically. You talked about low tunnels in the context of row cover because if you set up a frame and I guess that frame could be made of PVC, it could be made of galvanized wire, any sort of thing that is creating a hoop structure. You can have row cover on that, which is going to entail stretching that row cover over and having something weighing it down on either side. But what you're saying is when it gets really cold, as we transition from fall into winter, if you actually want to keep using that, you need to switch from row cover to some sort of thick plastic is is that right yeah i mean you can keep using it as row cover but you just have to accept that row covers are fabrics and it allows air transfer and so what you're doing with that row cover is you are basically protecting an area of warm air and warm soil around the plant and you are slowing down the air transfer with the rest of the environment and the cold air that's coming that's everywhere else and because it's porous those temperatures are going to equilibrate eventually and so if you have something um, 
similarly in the daytime when it warms up those temperatures are equilibrating because air is moving when you have something like plastic that's less permeable it builds up higher temperatures because that air is not moving throughout the day and therefore you get higher temperatures going into the evening um, when it's cooling off so that also is not going to keep you warm and cozy through the whole winter when it gets cold enough it won't do the trick but it it's more protective in terms of it's more warming than row cover alone so what crops in a vegetable garden would you say are great candidates to consider growing under a uh, under a low tunnel and what could you expect can you actually expect those crops to continue to grow and where you can get continual harvest throughout the winter or like where should we be setting our expectations i think this depends a little bit on where you're located so if you're way up in northern new hampshire you should keep your expectations lower because it's going to get colder faster and you may get snowfall and the ground may freeze. And so practically speaking, even if you can get crops to grow later into the fall, you won't be able to access them easily in a low tunnel because you won't be able to easily move those covers and get in there. So I would say that Harvesting into the fall is a reasonable expectation. You might expect to do that into maybe Christmas time or January 1st, if you were in way Southern New Hampshire, um, you might be looking at November 1st, if you are way up near the Canadian border, you might be, you, there's different expectations there. I think one of them, from my research, one of the most exciting things about low tunnels in a vegetable garden is that they are the semi-protected environment where you can plant crops that will overwinter in those tunnels where you're not actually harvesting them in the fall. They're just like protected there and you can harvest them in the spring when the snow is finally gone. And so it gets you kind of a jump on the spring. And so candidate crops for that kind of system include kale and spinach and onions and scallions, things like that, which are cold hardy, but would not, we don't think of them as surviving our typical unprotected winters, but they would survive under a low tunnel just fine. If you're intending to overwinter something like a scallion or kale or spinach, when are you actually planting that out in your garden? The timing of planting is tricky. And it's tricky because every fall's weather looks different. But realistically, you are probably looking at planting that early enough so that the plant can get established before the winter comes. So it's got to put on some growth ahead of time. So you're probably looking at sometime in the month of September. And if you were looking at onions and scallions that you were going to start from seed, you'd probably be seeding them in August um, and then planting them out in September or very early October. All of this varies enormously based on where you are, how warm your falls are, the kinds of varieties you're looking at. And these are the kinds of questions I've spent lots of time trying to tease out in my research. And it's always trade-offs between 
planting early and planting late and how well they survive versus how much time it takes and whether they possibly get too big before winter comes. So there's, this is definitely gardening 201. This is not gardening 101 when you're starting to look at these overwintering systems. If you're intending to overwinter something like spinach, could you potentially plant it in early September or something and actually get a harvest or two and then decide, hey, I'm going to try and overwinter this and keep harvesting in the spring? Or is it a situation where you really need to plant it with the sole intention of overwintering it and doing all your harvesting in the spring? No, you're absolutely right. You can do that. And in fact, um, our work with that here in Durham showed that you get the most spinach off plants that are planted earlier that you harvest through the fall. And then they take sort of a break during the winter and then you harvest again in the spring. Yeah, that that is absolutely possible. And so we we've talked about some greens some of these colder hardy greens. So I'm curious about something like lettuce that is not as cold hardy, but is a tasty green. And we know that at least in commercial agriculture, winter lettuce is a great crop that I love to buy. There are also some of the brassicas that I'm curious about as well. So are low tunnels appropriate for overwintering lettuce and some of the brassicas, or do you need to step it up a notch? Uh, to a different overwintering technique? I would say that in general, the brassica family crops are more cold tolerant than lettuce. And so they are a better candidate for overwintering in low tunnels than lettuce. That said, not all of them are very cold tolerant and not all of them will survive a typical winter in a low tunnel. We have had years when we're doing research here when lettuce grown in low tunnels into the fall could be harvested until, you know, sometime in January. But there's been other years when it's died much earlier than that because of sudden cold spells. So it's more risky. These, as you get with slightly less hardy crops, it gets riskier um, and there's a higher chance of it. Uh, perishing due to cold damage. So, you know, if you wanted to really guarantee your ability to overwinter crops like that, you would have to scale it up and you'd have to look at a high tunnel um, and high tunnels in combination with row covers if you weren't going to heat your high tunnel. Um, But many of the commercial growers that look at winter green production in this state do heat minimally because that removes the chances, the risk of the crop having cold damage, which, or dying due to some sudden cold period. So, um, you know, then we're talking about a much, much, much bigger investment. But even with an unheated high tunnel, um, it's reasonable to expect many mixed greens, including lettuces through much of the year, especially in the southern part of the state. So can you actually tell us what a high tunnel is? And is there some small version of a high tunnel that is actually practical for someone at a garden scale? 
I think so, but I think that I also come at this from a homesteader perspective where lots of things are practical that might not be for other people. Um, so a high tunnel is basically an unheated greenhouse. Um, there are several manufacturers and they're made of sort of um, gothic pointed bows so that they shed snow. And those bows come in various widths. So you asked about size. A gardener could put up a high tunnel that is 12 feet wide and 14 feet long, which is not a very big footprint, but still very um, a protected environment that you can walk in and access in the winter months and really have a lot of productivity from. Um, our tunnel at home is a little bigger than that. It's about 20 feet wide and about 40 feet long. And um, that's even more protected space and more warm because it's bigger. Um, you can, the sky is the limit on these things. But I do think that, I think they are practical if, um, if gardening is your focus and growing local food year round is your focus. That's, that is probably the, the most sure way to be able to do that. And what kind of investment sort of generally are we looking at there, like to get in at that sort of low end of the high tunnel size? You know, are we looking at maybe anticipating a few hundred dollars or like what, what does your experience tell you? My feeling is that for those for a smaller sized home sized high tunnel, you'd probably be looking more at, I'm guessing a thousand dollars or a little more. But what this is getting is something that is rugged and is going to withstand snow loads as opposed to you can do it much more inexpensively um, with various ways that you know, are not going to necessarily withstand storms and heavy snow. So I'm talking about a, a rugged built for our conditions kind of structure that will stand and, and be there for the foreseeable future. So with these, usually you, you buy the bows and the framing, you fabricate yourselves the end walls, and you have to buy a piece of plastic to cover it. And so those are kind of the basic pieces that go into that. And actually going back to low tunnels for a second, are they designed potentially to also shed snow? Or is that a real concern that they could just collapse under the weight of snow? You know, it's interesting. Um, they're not designed to shed snow. Usually they're just made out of rounded pieces of PVC or conduit or something like that. Um, and one of the things when I started working with these for research is I, I was actually worried they might collapse under snow and they never did. Even though, even in years where we got tons of snow and ice, they never did. They collapsed in the spring when it became muddy out and the bows were not supported in the ground anymore. And so then they would fall over but they never collapsed under snow loads, interestingly. How do you explain that? And for those really surprisingly tough low tunnels, what were you making them out of? 
Oh, well, I made them out of different things because I was kind of exploring that. We made them out of pieces of PVC that we would bend 10 foot pieces of PVC pipe that we would bend and slip over little pieces of rebar that acted as ground posts in the ground. So those were some of them. And some of them were made out of um, bent uh, EMT conduit, metal, metal tubing. Um, and both of these worked just fine. I attribute it to, you know, there's not a lot of wind load on a low tunnel when there's a lot of snow. So the snow just kind of comes up around it and then keeps building up on top of it. But there just wasn't a lot of pressure on it, I guess. Um, they they just never collapsed. I, I would not expect the same thing for a greenhouse. <laughs> and that's because of the wind uh, on top of the snow. You need to have an engineer on your program to ask them this question. But I, I am, I'm not sure. Kind of going really, really far away from anything involving an engineer, I was hanging out with a few master gardeners this morning, and one of them said that she's had a lot of success overwintering in her garden by just piling straw on top of certain crops. So opposite of engineering there, what's your take on just piling mulch on, say, spinach or something else? So... Straw and mulch are fabulous insulators. So this is a really great way to overwinter. I mean, we do this with garlic, even though perhaps maybe it doesn't need it, but other more sensitive bulbs and things like that. We do this over parsnips or carrots sometimes to try to make it so the ground doesn't freeze solid when we want to go and harvest them. Um, I've seen mixed results about when research has tried to compare um, straw versus low tunnels or other ways to protect actively growing like green crops, it's insulating, but it also totally blocks light. And so I definitely, I would not argue with the master gardener that you were speaking with who has had success because if they have a system that works, I am sure they've figured out there must be something about this that works. Um, but at the same time, um, oftentimes when you cover a green actively growing plant with, or not that actively growing, but a green plant with straw, it will, when it, it's warm enough to start wanting to grow in the spring and the soil warms up, it, it may suffer from that. And so I, there's some risks there. And there's also the risk that it's a fabulous vole habitat, which is also true for low tunnels, I might add. Um, and so interestingly, last year we did a little experiment looking at row covers and straw mulch and um, their ability to protect an oat cover crop. That was just not for to keep the oats growing, but it was there as an indicator. And all the oats were killed under the straw. And there was a ton of predation happening. Lots of critters were under there eating things. And so I think it could work, but there's also some, some risks with that as well, I guess I would say. And I will say another gardener who was in this conversation said that they also tried overwintering with straw, but when they took the straw up, the plants came up with it. So another oh, potential challenge. There's another possible pitfall. Um, you brought up carrots, Becky, and 
carrots are one of those crops that some people seem to have effortless success with and other people seem to struggle like no matter what they try is it possible to grow carrots over the winter over winter carrots like share your secrets on that one so I will be honest that and tell you that I do not try to grow carrots over to maintain carrots over winter outdoors. Um, I keep them in a high tunnel and they do fabulously over winter in a high tunnel harvesting through to about February when they start trying to grow again. So um, the thing with carrots is that they are unlike parsnips. They're just a bit more cold sensitive. And so if we have kind of luck and a really mild winter and everything's in our favor, it's possible to overwinter carrots um, successfully. And that's why we can do it in a a high tunnel, which is a bit warmer than outside. Um, But given our typical weather conditions, I would not expect Um, high chances of success in a given year with carrots outdoors without some supplemental protection. So I don't have a secret. (laughs) Well, if you are going to try and do that with carrots, when would you look to plant those? You'd probably be looking to plant those in July or possibly a little bit earlier. Okay. That's the timing for if you were going to overwinter them in a high tunnel here, you would want them, again, pretty big and grown by the time fall comes around and they kind of stop growing. So that's that's usually a July planting for a high tunnel. So your idea for a high tunnel, let me just make sure I understand what you're saying. So you plant in July, they by the time you get to late fall, they're pretty well and grown and you are sort of continuously harvesting them through December, January, February. And then you mentioned that you there's kind of a cutoff where they start to grow again. Can you explain what you mean by that and why that's a problem, potentially? So carrots are a biennial. And so the carrots are doing what carrots would do in the wild. They've grown, they've made this nice taproot. And if we don't harvest it, they overwinter in a mild climate. And then when they, the winter is done and they start to perceive, you know, that it's getting longer days and warmer, they start to send out fine roots, feeder roots from that main tap root, and they start to grow and they will make a flower stalk and they will go to flower and it'll look just like a Queen Anne's lace, a wild carrot. So that's what they want to do and what they're, they're doing. And as they send out those fibery feeding roots in the spring, they become less sweet and delicious and more um, kind of uh, the text, they get tough and woody and the flavor becomes more bitter and not delicious anymore. So when we notice they start to make those fine fibery roots, we pull them out very quickly and put them in the fridge (laughs) or eat them all. And carrots are one of those crops that are known for getting that sort of winter sweetening where they're they just get better and better in that sort of scenario right incredibly sweet in the winter absolutely and we throw turnips and beets in there too when just real quick when are you planting turnips and beets for the same purpose about the same time um although 
the turnips um, store so well that in a root cellar that I would grow them outside and not mess around with high tunnel space and plant them in July and then harvest them right before the ground freezes and put them in a root cellar. Another challenging crop for for many gardeners are Brussels sprouts. Is there any potential for growing Brussels sprouts into winter, overwintering them? I don't think so. And the reason is that I think that even though there are cold, hardier Brussels sprouts, some are cold, hardier than others, I think that the, the minimum cold temperatures we get are cold enough that they will eventually damage the Brussels sprouts and reduce their quality. So really when you get down into the teens, it's hard for them to, you know, they really can't recover from that and then they will decay and so forth. So I, I don't think there's a lot of potential for overwintering Brussels sprouts. I think you're, you're better off growing those into the fall. And then again, Believe it or not, if you have a decent root cellar storage space, they can be stored on the stock in like buckets of water, not unlike, you know, a big giant bouquet of Brussels sprouts. Wow. They can be stored reasonably well for, you know, several weeks, a couple, few months. They, they do decrease in quality, but um, it's, it's better than trying to keep them outside. Do you have any experience growing in cold frames? I know that's a real sort of small scale enterprise, um, but that is an entry level sort of opportunity for gardeners, especially those who have pretty limited space. I totally agree. And I just don't have any experience growing in cold frames. I, I have this idea that they require, they would require a lot of management to keep the temperature in the kind of ideal range, but they offer a lot of the benefits that a high tunnel would just, um, you know, on a smaller scale. When I was thinking about cold frames, just in preparation for this conversation, as I often do, I went on to some websites that sell you know, gardening supplies. Um, and I also went on to general websites like Amazon and those places just to see like, hey, what's even for sale? And there is a huge range of products. Some of them are really, really inexpensive and made with really thin plastic. And then other ones are, are sturdier um, and made with uh, much thicker materials. I have to say, I've heard some anecdotal experience from the really cheap ones that they just don't stand up to the elements in our region and might be maybe more appropriate for, for further south. I want to be charitable, so I won't say that they're just products that you shouldn't buy in general, but I they don't seem to work really well up here. And some people make their own out of like old windows and you know th- things like that. I've also heard of people actually making what I've heard called hotbeds where you use some sort of electric heat source essentially um, like a heat mat inside it seems like a lot of work to me for a relatively little gain um, but it's interesting and and I've even heard of utilizing like manure as as a potential heat source again I feel like I would need an engineer to explain that to me 
Okay, Becky's taken off, and now I'm going to turn it over to horticulturist and UNH Extension field specialist Emma Erler to answer this episode's featured question. Is winter sowing a shortcut to spring? That's this episode's featured question. Some gardeners have found that winter sowing cool season annuals and vegetables and protected plastic jugs or other transparent covered containers can give them a slight jump on producing seedlings for spring. If you want to try winter sowing, start saving clear plastic containers like juice bottles. Fill the container partway with moist potting mix, sow your seeds, and then place the containers in a cold but protected location. If you do this in February to March, seeds of cold-tolerant crops such as beets, chard, and cabbage will be ready to germinate as soon as soil temperatures reach minimum suitable levels, around 35 to 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Like a mini greenhouse, the transparent covers capture solar energy that warms the soil or medium in the containers earlier than exposed soil in the ground in the spring. Be sure to provide slits or holes for ventilation to avoid overheating on sunny days and holes in the bottom of containers for drainage. Once you have vigorous seedlings, transplant them as soon as possible. Midwinter sowing or seeding also allows for natural stratification to occur. That is, exposing seeds to cold, moist conditions needed by many perennials and some annuals to break seed dormancy. For many herbaceous perennials and woody plant species, 60 to 90 days of cold temperatures in the 32 to 50 degree range are required, but some plants have more specific requirements. Seed companies are often a good source of specific information. You can moist stratify seeds in your refrigerator instead of winter sowing or seeding too. Mix seeds with a small amount of moist, not wet, sand, vermiculite, or sphagnum peat in a plastic bag or covered container. Label it and leave it to chill until spring. Once the seed has been stratified, it should be planted before it germinates. So, if you gardeners out there want a shortcut to spring, winter sowing or seeding might do the trick, but be sure to choose appropriate species and pay attention to timing and other details. Emma, what's this episode's featured plant? The plant I want to feature this episode is Lovage, Lovisticum officinale. Lovage is a perennial culinary herb that is often grown in herb and vegetable gardens for its celery-like flavor of its leaves, stems, roots, and seeds. Celery can be a tricky plant to grow in New Hampshire, and I've found that Lovage is a great alternative. It's dramatic in the garden, growing three to six feet tall, with deeply divided dark green leaves, that are similar looking to parsley or celery leaves. And its flowers appear in the spring, yellow and flat-topped like other members of the carrot family, Apiaceae. Lovage is often used in soups, salads, sauces, stews, or really any other dish that could benefit from celery flavoring. The leaves are most often used, but the stems can be cooked as a vegetable too. Lovage stems are hollow, which can make them fun to add to drinks, like Bloody Mary's. I'll also note that lovage has ornamental value and can look great at the back of a perennial border. If you have moist, loamy soil and full sun, give lovage a try. Thanks, Emma. As this episode comes to an end, I want to share some closing tips on putting the garden to bed. 
When I talked with Becky, we touched on planning for frost and the fact that some veggies can handle light frost while others cannot, but at some point the garden must be put to bed. When you do, remove plants by cutting them down at the base, leaving the roots in the soil to break down. Also remove fallen leaves and fruits, composting healthy plant material, and discarding diseased plant material. Fall can be a good time to add amendments like manure and lime if your soil needs it. Fall is likewise an excellent time of year for soil testing. If you're able to get them seeded by mid-September, cover crops like spring oats are an inexpensive option that will winter kill but add organic matter and hold soil in place, among other benefits. And if you don't sow a cover crop, consider spreading an organic mulch like straw to suppress weeds and protect the soil to reduce erosion and nutrient leaching. And speaking of weeds, fall is an important time to remove leftover mature weeds and control winter annual weeds that come up in the fall. Removing weeds now helps manage next year's weeds. Lastly, there's the decision of whether to till. Many gardeners till in the fall as standard practice, but if you're not incorporating soil amendments like manure and lime, you can actually bypass tillage and avoid the soil disturbance that comes along with it. In your perennial garden beds, wait to cut back perennials until the foliage has died back, or wait until spring. Just removing and discarding diseased top growth in the fall while leaving healthy seed heads standing as a food source for birds. Moreover, dried stalks and leaves add winter interest to your garden, so consider waiting until early spring to do some of the cleanup you might have historically done in the fall. Fallen leaves can simply be left in perennial beds around trees and shrubs and on the periphery of your property. In your lawn, you're going to want to either rake up the leaves or use a mulching mower to chop them up in the yard where they will decompose over time without smothering your grass. If you rake up the leaves, add them to your compost pile, and save some leaves in a pile or in leaf bags so you have a good brown material to tap into for your compost pile over the winter and throughout next year's growing season. You can also save leaves to use as a garden mulch, and the more you chop them up, the more valuable they will be. And that's your closing gardening tip. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Granite State Gardening. Until next time, make some plans to overwinter or extend the season in a new way this fall, Granite State Gardeners. Talk with you soon. Granite State Gardening is a production of University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. Views expressed on this podcast are not necessarily those of the universities, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial products in this podcast does not imply endorsement. The University of New Hampshire, U.S. Department of Agriculture, and New Hampshire counties cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. Learn more at extension.unh.edu.